We're going to be reading through uh, some of the excerpts from James uh, that are printed in the zine, but starting from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, starting at verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And from James. Believers in humble circumstances or to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises according, uh, sorry, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Remarkable text, don't you think? Um, uh, difficult, challenging, uh, but good to have them all together. You know, this is sort of the rich and poor text. There are a few more in James, but these are the primary sort of rich and poor texts throughout James. And I want to sort of break open and see if we can make some sense uh, of these passages. And in the end, I'm going to talk about the final lecture there, the one that wasn't read, because I think that's the key to unlocking all the paradoxes and challenges that are in James and his view of the poor. Do you want to pray? Shall I pray? Let me pray. Father, there are many of us here who are hurting or downtrodden or suffering. Pray that you'll lift us up in due time. Give us an anchor for our souls. Lift us up in Jesus' name. We pray this in, in, in his name and through his power. Amen. So... Uh, a number of you know that I lived in New York City uh, a number of years ago, and one winter my community group went out in winter to take blankets to the people in need, a bit like what we did with the city care lunch last week. And I've got to tell you, it's cold in New York in February. Blankets are needed. I love what this homeless man taught me on Second Avenue. I said to him, I approached him, I said to him, uh, would you like a blanket? He looked back at me quick as a tack, he said, now why would I say no to something I need? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that profound? Why would I say no to something I need? I want you to keep that thought. I'll come back to it in a little while. Not too proud, don't you think? I love how the poor, the lonely, and the hurting have something to teach the rich, the happy, and the healthy. They do. I love how the rich receive something valuable from the poor. Do you see what I did there? <laughs> this is certainly true in God's economy, mapped out in James's epistle, because it's a gospel economy. <laughs> and it's going to require some unpacking long after this message is finished. And I'm going to come back to some of these texts in the series. So interact with me. Tell me that it makes sense. 
raise the questions you'd like to raise, connect the cards at the end of your rows, plus my email address is in the back. I found this sermon hard to prepare, difficult to map out. This morning at 8.30, I walked out thinking, wow, that was clear as mud. This woman came up to me, she said, that was the clearest thing you've ever said. <laughs> so I'll leave you to assess her assessment of me this morning. Interact with me, that's what I'm saying. Interact with me, please. What do the scriptures say about the blessedness of the poor? You know, what do they have to teach us? What do they have that we don't have? Because there's lots they don't have. <laughs> so what valuable things do they have? Well, in the Old Testament, they have the ear of God. Psalm 34 makes it clear that they have the ear of God. He is close to the brokenhearted, by the way, which widens out your view of the poor. He's close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In Isaiah 61, the poor are the recipient of the good news of Jesus. Long before Jesus came, Isaiah prophesied, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. In Psalm 68, verse 5, God, we find out, is a father to the orphan, to the fatherless, and a defender of widows. He has a downward eye, a downward trajectory to those in need. Jesus knew this when he said in Luke 6, blessed are you who are poor. In Matthew, it's you who are poor in spirit. Reason? Yours is the kingdom of God. <laughs> Conversely, woe to you who are rich. Eek. For you have already received your comfort. You've got everything you want now. Everything you've said you wanted, you got. That's what Jesus says. James regularly quotes his brother over and over and over again. I love that, by the way. <laughs> I think he had this in mind when he said in chapter 2, verse 5, in excerpt 3, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God he promised to those who love him? We're going to map some of that out today. We'll try to pick it apart and try to understand it over the season of James. That gives me a disclaimer. Keep talking with me. So we're in Sundays after Trinity, and there are dozens of them in the Anglican calendar. That's for the Angli nerds. The other phrase for it is ordinary time. And that's because since December, we've punched past Advent and Christmas. We've dealt with Epiphany and Revelations. We've talked about Easter and the death and resurrection of Jesus, Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit. They're all behind us. The first half of the calendar year is all about the life of Jesus. And so in the second half, we live it out. Faith at work. The most important thing about Sundays is Monday, what you do tomorrow morning. And so we're back in the book of James. We're going to dip into Daniel in the second half of the year. But today, as Andy said, I'm surveying excerpts from James to see what the brother of Jesus has to say about riches and poverty. So in James, as there are elsewhere in the Bible and the Gospels, there's this rich, poor paradox in the teaching of Jesus, namely that the poor are indeed the poor are indeed rich in that they have something of value that the rich don't have, namely an opportunity. And the rich are indeed poor in that they lack something that the poor have. 
And understanding this paradox, indeed resolving it, unlocks two possible things. Number one, the gospel of Jesus. Hard to understand the poverty of Jesus and the wealth we receive from him without sort of breaking open this paradox. But it also unlocks our hearts as well. Are we the rich? <laughs> and if we are, what do you do about it? And how are you going to handle that? Guilt? Something else? James breaks open a few of those things. So, to handle this topic, I've got three questions on page 12. Who, why, and how? Who are the poor? And who are the rich? Some definitions and descriptions in James. Why are the poor poor? And why are the rich rich? How do, they, how do the poor become poor? Which is a human economy, according to the flesh, if I could put it this way. But you inject God into your world and you have a gospel vision. How are the poor in fact rich and the rich in fact poor? And then how do you resolve that paradox from chapter 4, verses 1 to 10? It's a mistake there in your outline. Let me be clear before we begin. I am not an economist. If you are an economist, I bow before you. <laughs> uh, I'm above my pay grade. I am a Bible teacher. Uh, because I'm not an economist, I'm not here to explore economic theory, left or right or otherwise. I'm not going to tell you how the book of James functions in a nation state. So I'm going to draw no conclusions about taxes or taxation or welfare. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. And I'm, not, I'm not, not, not going to extol the virtues of wealth distribution on one hand or trickle-down economics on the other. I don't know yet how the book of James functions in the nation state. I'd love you to interact with me on that. You know, we can't, how do you hold a government to account and say, you should be doing what James does? See, how do you do that? Now, the reason I'm not going to do all that is because James addresses hearts in community. That's the key. He addresses hearts and Christian communities as they live out of a new heart given by Jesus Christ with new minds, seeing the poor in different ways. And that's why James says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, my brothers and sisters, not my comrades, he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. He's speaking to you if you believe in Jesus Christ, not just to Australian population. So firstly, who are the poor and who are the rich? This is straight from the text, straight from James. I'm not going to give you definitions, like you might have if you said, here's a poverty line. I think poverty is a richer idea than mere lack of dollars or possessions, although it's going to have crossover. And in the same way, by the way, riches is a richer idea than merely having dollars or having possessions. It's a matter of the heart. I'll talk about that in a moment. James, though, maps out some descriptions, and they're uncomfortable. So if you're writing notes, all three of you, just joking, According to the book of James, the poor are, I believe, people with no levers of power. No options or few options available to them. People who can't do anything about the humble circumstances they find themselves in. James is going to say, God has noticed you. In chapter 1 verse 9, they are defined as those in humble circumstances, meaning they don't have very much at the bottom. They are those who are 
suffering under oppression in chapter 5, verse 4. That's excerpt 4. They're crying out to the Almighty. That's consistent with the Old Testament. They are the workers who are defrauded of wages. They can't access the very pay that they've been earned. They are people to whom their wages have been denied. And there's a look about them. Chapter 2, verse 2, in excerpt 2, they have filthy old clothes, which I presume come with a smell. And in chapter 2, verse 15, not printed, they are without clothes or daily food. In excerpts 2 and 3, they are discriminated against. When they come into your meetings, you sit them in the corner and you say, um, you know, nowhere public, please, we've got to look around here, we might say. Hopefully not. And in excerpt 3, they're dragged into court by the rich ones. So they lack any power to influence. They don't have levers or hands on the levers to bring the food and the clothes and the things their way. And so they watch the favours and the things flow in one direction, upward. That's the poor. In James, the rich are a troubled lot. My 13-year-old daughter listened this morning and I looked at her notes. Is that like reading her diary? Who are the rich? A troubled lot. (laughs) And in James, they have everything and at the same time, nothing. Uh, There are lots of warnings for those of us with our hands on the levers, which I take as most Australians... Um, somebody at 8.30 pointed out to me, poverty has many forms. It was Mother Teresa that famously said that uh, the worst form of poverty is loneliness. And Jesus sort of maps that out, of course, in Luke chapter 9, because it's not just blessed are the poor and woe to the rich, but there's weeping and mourning and laughing and joking, you see. There's a, a, a heart thing going on, clearly. But here here they are, maps it out. 5 verse 5 in excerpt 4, they lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. They fed themselves more, which is the image around the fattening themselves. You know, it's not as if you had enough, you had more than enough. It's ironic, of course, because it's the fat cows that are always the first slaughtered. No one ever says, ooh, a thin cow, kill that one first. In chapter 5 verse 4, they are the ones who defraud the workers of fair wages, I presume wanting to leverage the money withheld for themselves. They experience privilege even in church. In chapter 2, verse 3, at your meetings, uh, some, some commentators say that James is speaking to a sort of um, Jewish Israel and saying, if you believe in Jesus Christ, here's the way back in, you see. And so it's possible in chapter 2, verse 3, that they're experiencing privilege in the synagogue. You know, people who say, here, sit down and let me get you a fan. Cup of tea, sir, ma'am. A bit like being in first class, you get the drink first, you know, and we all have to walk past you, he said. And in chapter 2, verse 6, the rich are those who exploit the poor and drag them to court because they can. They do it for their own means. So there's a movement, uh, and it's not downward to the poor in love. There's no margins for them. It's all take, 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 drink, 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 eat, eat, eat. Now, what do you do with all that? (laughs) Well, the first thing I want to say is that James is the only book of the New Testament that follows the Old Testament prophetic formula. You read an Old Testament prophet, which is about a third of your Old Testament, 
And then you read James and you see it sort of mirrored in a way that it's not in the Gospels or in Paul's letters or in the other epistles. Maybe in, in Revelation, but even then that follows the apocalyptic form. But let me, can I show you exactly what I mean? In chapter 5, verse 1, please get your eye on it. It's exact excerpt 4. Listen to this. And then I'm going to read you the words of the prophets. And you tell me you can't hear the same voice. Like they went to the same school. Listen to, to, to James 5 verse 1. Now listen, right, a blanket call. You can hear the prophet saying it. Listen, O Jerusalem. Listen, you rich people. This general call, all you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Present tense, right? The corrosion will eventually testify against you. And the corrosion will eat your flesh like fire, right? Your soul will be eaten from the inside by the stuff you've accumulated. You see, you've hoarded wealth in these last days. So um, awkward. So um, challenging. But listen to Joel. 700 BC, Joel, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land. This horde of Babylonians coming to destroy Jerusalem. And in Amos chapter 4, verse 1, hear this, right? Listen, you cows of Bashan, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, Bring me some drinks. More, more, more. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness that time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. See, all those prophets and James function the same way. And in fact, you could argue it's afflict, what is it? Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's what they did. They made you squirm. Are you squirming in your seat? They they're there to make you squirm in your seat. That's its purpose. That's its rhetorical function. The prophets lacked tact. They were blunt for God. They didn't want friends. They wanted converts. They were tired of spiritual flab. They wanted change. And so they framed things in binary terms to prod you and to push you. They didn't bother with nuance. And in doing so, they cut through and were subsequently very awkward people. Frederick Bickner once wrote cheekily, there's no evidence to suggest that anyone asked a prophet home for supper more than once. James fits the category. And so there's this general call, and it's a prophetic call to the powerful, the rich, your days are numbered. Watch out. If you have value, it won't be because of the levers you pull. There'll have to be another reason why you have value. We'll come to that. But look at the bottom of Exodus 4, in chapter 5, verse 6. You find out who the rich really are. The rich have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. He's speaking about Jesus Christ. The rich are those who killed Jesus. They, well, Tom Wright says, James is addressing the leadership in Jerusalem through the church, through Jesus Christ, and he's saying the same sorts of things as Peter said in Acts. You protected your power. You let no one take the lever. You didn't want God to take the lever. You had a religion that disregarded the widow and the orphan. You had this seed of hatred that led to the killing of Jesus Christ. 
You've condemned and murdered the innocent one, even though he wasn't opposing you. He was there to save you, for goodness sake, and to forgive you. But you strung him on a cross. James is being a prophet here, just like Peter in Acts chapter 3. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. So that's first. Uh, secondly, why are the poor poor? How do they get that way? And why are the rich rich? And the answer, I think, in James is, those with the levers never give them up. And so the money and the goods keep flowing in one direction, upward. When what we're hearing is that God has this trajectory downward. In James, the rich and the poor aren't disconnected where you say, look, you know, I got wealthy and there's somebody over there that's poor, but I have no relation to them. In James, the rich become rich on the back of the poor. Now, I get that economies aren't zero-sum games, that if I have this part of the pie, I've robbed it from somebody else. I understand that. But James is a prophet and he's not an economist. But he says, you know, watch out if you're one of the people who are hurting uh, others. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, in excerpt 3, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you to court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the holy name of him to whom you belong? Now, all of that's risky to say, but I didn't say it. James said it. I think there's a few reasons in James why the rich get richer, and the answer is the answers are these ones. First, they hoard, chapter 5, verse 3. In other words, they have to have, and they have to have more. Isn't it always 15% more, and then I'll be okay? And so they take and take and take, rather than uh, share or look or care or be, on, or be um, uh, thoughtful, margins. They take and take and take. Secondly, they fail to pay their workers, chapter 5, verse 4, keeping the dollars, uh, presumably, to leverage elsewhere. Third, they live in structures in communities where they gain more, where people come in and say, please, sit down, please sit down. And of course, people are tempted to join the systemic problem because if you flatter upwards, maybe they'll give you a leg up. The temptation then is to join them. But James is going to say, Jesus says, flip it. We'll come to that in a moment. And fourth, they use the courts to oppress the poor and uh, pay for their oppression and, just, and injustice. Now, I think you could argue that a human economy, uh, you take God out of the picture and you take justice out of the picture, where it's just survive and therefore survival of the fittest, you could say, well, the rich have all the levers and maybe they should have all the levers. One might say that, and certain regimes have. And so in the words of Midnight Oil, I just revealed my age. In the words of Midnight Oil, the rich get richer and the poor get the picture. So third, let's inject the gospel into this economy here, this language, this challenge. How is it that the poor are in fact rich and the rich are in fact poor? How is that possible? Because something amazing happens when you put God into the economy. There's this beautiful um, upside-down thing <laughs> that happens in James. And it happens in the life of Jesus. By the way, you can put it simply by saying it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors 
and the sinners who come and listen at the feet of Jesus because in their down spot they had this opportunity where they say, oh, well, maybe he's got the words of eternal life and it's the rich who murder and kill the innocent one, see. It's as simple as that, really. Um, Jesus said it's not the righteous, who need, you know, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. A sick person has this opportunity to say, well, I need help, where a person who doesn't think they're sick thinks they don't need help. And so there's this upside-down thing happening in the Gospels and happening here in James. Chapter 1, verse 9, here it is. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. James is saying, that spot you find yourself down the bottom, that's a high position, presumably because God notices you while you're there. This is good news. James is basically saying, and I know it's cold comfort. I get that. I get that. But James is saying, if you are in a humble circumstance, you're in this place, this possibility, this opportunity to be lifted up. We'll see that in a moment. By the way, I think we ought to stop saying the phrase, um, let's help those less fortunate than ourselves. I think we've got to find some other language to capture what we're meaning there. I mean, I get what we're meaning. I've been fortunate in so many ways, and I say this about myself, and sometimes I look at other people and I think, well, I could help somebody less fortunate than myself. Why are we saying they're less fortunate than me? Just because I have certain privileges and things. And maybe in God's economy, I'm actually the poor one. You know, if I'm not rich towards him, Jesus would say that. And maybe there's a poor one who has less than me that's alive to God in a way that I have never known. In other words, the phrase, let's help those less fortunate than ourselves, is only usually about things, about God's economy. He sees the heart. It comes out in a moment. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation because they will pass away like a wild flower. They'll die. You can't take it with you. You can't take the car with you. And he's going to go on to say, and you'll face judgment the way everybody will face judgment. Because if it's all about things, the things will go. Verse 11, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, with its blossoming, falling, and its beauty being destroyed. And in the same way, there's a plant, a rich person, they've got blossoms and beauty, but they'll, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. I once sat with a, a man uh, who was clearly in distress, uh, 95 years old, and he kept saying to me, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? He'd been famous in a particular incident that had took, taken place. And as I sat there, I thought to myself, I mean, the man had a lot going on, don't get me wrong. We were there with Hope for Sydney to care for people in that stage of their life. But I kept thinking, oh, the significance we receive from the things we do, I mean, they, they're real and God uses them to say to us, you're contributing and you're growing and you're caring and you're building. But in the end, the significance we have has to come purely from me being a creature of a good God and, and saved according to his grace. So that when I get to the point where I'm fading like a flower, I can still be able to say to myself that I have value, great value in the eyes of a good God. According to the book of James, the poor have something the rich don't have. They have a high position. They are, chapter 1, verse 27, the content and concern of true religion. They are 
chosen by God to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. I know this raises more questions than it answers, but it's a very simple idea in the gospel economy. Those who are at the bottom find themselves at the top, and those at the top sometimes find themselves at the bottom. didn't have this in my notes, but I did a course at university in my arts degree called Christian Conversion Movements. Why did people become en masse Christians in, for example, Scandinavia in the 990 AD? Fascinating. Uh, movements in Africa, etc. And we looked at the southern part of India in the 19th century where millions and millions and millions and millions of people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And of course, the course at Sydney University had to have some other reason why they became Christian other than the Spirit of God touched them. So we had to be either they were doing it out of fear, the sword, or out of economic gain. And there was an economic thing going on, but I don't think it was just that they were looking for more. I think the gospel gave them a sense they could never have got from their own culture, namely that in the South, where there's a lot of poverty, they were the untouchables. Their whole culture said to them, you are not valuable. And the missionaries came along and said, you're valuable because you're made in the image of, of the living God. You're valuable even if you don't become a Christian. But if you do, wow, bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. They are chosen by God to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. Rowan sent me a text this morning which says, where all the movements of God are happening in, Australia, in the world today, they're often in, in the poorest parts of our world. So how do you resolve the paradox? Well, it's resolved in the gospel of Jesus Christ applied to human hearts. Look at excerpt 5. Excerpt 5 is the key. In James 4, 1 to 5, James says that the problem lies in the heart, not in economic structures. Chapter 4, verse 1, you have desires that rage within you. Chapter 4, verse 2, you don't get what you want, and so you kill and covet and control and take. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask with wrong motives to spend what you have on your pleasures. So you ask God for things, but you only do it so that you can drink more and eat more. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 4, you become a friend of the world, an adulterous people. But here's the key. Chapter 4, verse 6, he gives us more grace. What do you know? Grace is the answer. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud. Here's the paradox. But he shows grace, favor to the humble. And then he tells you what to do. And it's all about humility. Submit yourselves to God, verse 7. Come near to God and he will come near to you and humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. There's a dynamic and there's a paradox of the gospel. That if you want to kiss the sky... You've got to learn how to kneel. And so in God's world, not the human one, the favours, the grace flow in one direction, downward, to those who are either there by, by uh, uh, circumstance or who place themselves there in humility, who humble themselves before the Lord that he may lift you up. And so the levers of power, God's power, are the levers of grace to sinners like me. And the rich, and let's face it, there's a reading in which that's all of us. We, like the poor, need to learn humility and need to repent. Lewis said this process of surrender, this movement, full speed, astern, is what Christians call repentance. The retina and the eye, and this, I'll leave you this reflection, the retina and the eye is amazing. Please tell me if I'm wrong later. Andy did afterwards, and I've changed it after the 10th of June. The retina in the eye is amazing because you take an image that is and then because of the lens in the eye, 
it imposes the image on the retina upside down, and then the brain manages to write it up for you. Isn't that amazing? Upside down, and then write it up. Upside down, and then write it up. If you look at the world through the world's lens, you'll say the rich get richer and the poor get the picture, and you'll see the world as it's wrong. But it often leads, without the gospel, it often leads to anger and social action built around arrogance. I want you to look at the Dr. Keller quote at home tonight when he talked about a group of people that wanted to do social action in the church, but because they were doing it out of a spirit of arrogance and not humility, not gospel shape, they looked down on those who looked down on others. They were saying, you should get with the program. And because this exists, you have this concept of social justice warrior. I know it's a pejorative, but it really does exist. And so does virtue signaling, where you're telling everybody else in the world that you've got it right and they don't. But the gospel gives you a new mind, new eyes, new vision. The gospel is like a new mind that takes what the retina sees, which is the wrong way around, and writes it up again. And so you'll get a new mind about Jesus. Jesus is the poor one who was oppressed by the rich but was resurrected in glory. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And guess who inherited the earth? The meek one who, for our sakes, became poor, even though he was rich, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So you have a new mind about Jesus. You go, ah. You'll also have a new mind about yourself. That's what chapter 4 is about. The homeless guy says to me on 2nd Avenue, why would I say no to something I need? The rich need Jesus, as do the poor. King David, in Psalm 86, this is how we started our service, King David, in Psalm 86, said, Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. You'll have a new mind, new vision for others. See, what if you do if you are rich, as many of us are? Well, James says, this is true religion, to look after the widow and the orphan to have a downward trajectory and this is going to, you're going to have to have eyes and margins in your life to see those who need help when the inclination is to exalt ourselves we need to humble ourselves before a mighty god when the inclination is to defend ourselves we need to confess our sins and receive more grace when the inclination is to get more we need to share more when it's to grab levers it's to share levers and then to extend the same downward movement that God has to me to others when the inclination is to hurt, we need to heal. When it's to take, we need to give. When the inclination is to chase after the famous and the wealthy and the elite. Like Jesus, we need to serve the shy and the poor. When the inclination is to pretend everything is okay, we need to mourn and grieve because we know we live in this broken world. When the inclination is to self-preservation, we choose the cross. Jesus himself said, if anyone wants to follow me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Let me pray. I want to pray a prayer, um, an, ancient, an old prayer from the, from the Valley of Vision. Listen closely. This was given to me at 4 p.m. Listen to this. I think it expresses it perfectly. Let's pray. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. 
hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that the way to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Grant us this for Christ's sake. Amen.